Uh, how about we pray before we look at uh, this passage together? Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you that we can gather together this afternoon and explore this issue of the resurrection. Uh, please help us to understand it, and in understanding it, help us to know how to respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin by sharing with you what the Apostle Paul thinks about the importance of the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. That is, Jesus actually died. Uh, he was nailed to a cross where he died. He was taken down from the cross. He was placed in a tomb. And then on the third day, he's found alive again and talking with people. Now, does it matter if that happened? Does it not matter if that happened? Well, let me tell you what uh, the Apostle Paul had to say. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're then found to be false witnesses or liars about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he didn't raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Clearly, the Apostle Paul thought that the physical resurrection of Jesus was important. Um, he says then, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. Paul is giving up his life to let others know that this man that was executed only a few years before is alive now. And there are big implications of Jesus being alive now. And Acts chapter 2 is a good place for us to explore those. So if you've got your Bibles there, you might like to keep them open in Acts chapter 2. Uh, it's a long passage. We're not going to be looking at it in detail. But I do want to point to some key things. When the day of Pentecost came, now you might be uh, tempted to think that there was this day called the day of Pentecost. But Pentecost literally means the 50th day. So what it's saying is on the 50th day, this is what happened. And then after that, we then remember that day and we give it a name, Pentecost. But we could change the name and just call it the 50th day. And keep calling it the 50th day because that's what it means. On that day, what takes place? Well, there's this extraordinary event. Um, there's the sound of the wind blowing, a violent wind coming from heaven, uh, fills the room that they're seated in. Uh, there are tongues of fire that are separating and resting on the people. And all of them, it says, were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, the other tongues that they're speaking in here, we are told a little bit about that because down in verse 7, utterly amazed, well, just before that, every one of them hears people speaking in their own language. Now, the gathering here is of people who've come from every nation under heaven, back in verse 5. Uh, they're they're God-fearing people. They're, they're people who are Jewish. That is, they believe in God. They're Jewish. They've come back from all of these nations. They're gathered there in Jerusalem. And the amazing thing is that when they hear these Galileans speaking, what they think is in other languages, they can understand it. But the Galileans, why are they doing that? And how are they doing that? And what's the significance 
of them doing this. The, the, uh, the Galileans speaking so that each person hears it in their own language. Well, think back to what has taken place in the Bible so far. Uh, we've been working our way through the Old Testament. Uh, the, the nation of Israel split, remember, into ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. The ten tribes in the north were scattered into all the countries up in the north by the Assyrians. Never a kingdom again. The two tribes to the south, well, they get taken into exile by the Babylonians. And when they come back, they're not quite what they once were. Now we've got these Jewish people that have been scattered all over the place. And they're gathered together and people are hearing the Galileans, that is Peter and the others, speaking. But they're hearing them in their own language. So those who are off in this place called Cappadocia and, and the one who was down there in Mesopotamia and, and the person from Pontus and Asia and, and from Rome and so on, they're all hearing in their own language, their own tongue. What's happening with that? Well, I think something momentous is taking place. If you remember when the people of God built that tower back in Genesis chapter 11 that was a city that might reach to the heavens. We know it as the Tower of Babel. God scattered the people and he made it so they didn't understand each other. They were broken up into different languages. Now they're gathered in and they understand each other. Now there's community again. Now they're gathered together as a people. And how is this happening? Well, those who are there think that it's evidence that they stayed up too late and drank too much alcohol. Uh, they think that they're drunk. But Peter stands up with the 11 and raises his voice, verse 14, and says, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, we Aussies know that makes no difference whatsoever. Uh, but the point is, they aren't actually drunk. They've not been drinking. No, God has been doing something. And what has God been doing? Well, he foretold it through the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes this. And I'll just re recap that for you. Verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's Peter saying? What you can see going on around you here in Jerusalem, the prophet Joel said that there would be a great event on the last days where the Spirit would be poured out so that the Spirit is speaking through people and impacting people. Extraordinary events are taking place that lead people to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And this is the day of the Lord that right through the Old Testament they've been looking forward to. 
See, this 50th day since the Passover, this 50th day brings to fulfilment the promises of God that he would gather his people together, he would unite them as one, he'd pour his spirit upon them, and he would bring them into relationship with God, he would save them. That's what's happening, Peter says. This is a big event, major event. Well, having listened to Peter, he goes on, sorry, having, having kind of referenced this with the Old Testament, Peter goes on to say a summary, if you like, of the good news about Jesus. And I want to take you through this. It, it's kind of like a five-point gospel outline, which is good for us because most of us have got five fingers. So I can quiz you at the end of this. You should be able to remember all five. Anyone got more than five, by the way? No? I've got ten. <laughs> okay, so let's have a look at what he says. Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So the first point in Peter's gospel outline is that Jesus lived. He lived and he did extraordinary things. He healed people, he raised the dead, he taught with an authority that nobody had ever seen before. He let people know what God was like. And he, he did so with God's authority. He was accredited by God and God did all of these marvellous things through him. So the first thing, have a look at the life of Jesus. And uh, I don't know that they would have, well, they wouldn't have had the Gospels back then, but we're privileged, aren't we? Because we, we actually have four accounts of the life of Jesus. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And a good chunk of all of those Gospels, those biographies of Jesus, account for the life and the ministry of Jesus. That's the first thing. We're talking about history, God amongst us, Jesus Christ doing these extraordinary things. That's the first point. Second point, verse 23, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So the second point of Paul's gospel outline is the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus is both planned by God and wicked. God is able to work through the wickedness of people. So who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, it's those people that betrayed him. It's those people that flogged him and whipped him and nailed him to the cross. It's the crowds who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. It's the authorities who enabled that deed to happen. It's wicked people that killed Jesus. They're accountable for their wickedness. But God is so incredible that he is able to use the wickedness of this event, the crucifixion of Jesus, to bring about a plan, something that he'd been promising for centuries to deal with people's sin. This is what Fiona was talking about with the swap. That is, my sin, your sin, is laid upon Jesus and he dies paying the price for that sin. That's God's plan. That's his purpose. We saw a glimpse of that. Well, we didn't actually look at this bit, but uh, back in, in Genesis chapter 50, 
Joseph is there with his brothers and he said, what you intended for evil, God planned for good and the saving of many lives. See, they threw him into a prison. They thought that was the end of the day, but that prison was the means by which Pharaoh got him back out and he was able then to rescue the people from the famine that was coming by providing uh, management skills to gather it all up and provide food for the famine that was about to take place. God's plan and purpose. And God is big enough to be able to use the worst events that we could possibly imagine to bring about good outcomes. doesn't mean that God's evil, but he works through the evil to bring about what is holy and good, and that is forgiving people their sin. So the death of Jesus, his life and ministry, then his death. Now, thirdly, we come to the resurrection. Look at verse 24. We see there that you put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's the third point, and it's absolutely a critical point. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if his bones are still in some tomb in the Middle East, then we're to be pitied. We're, we're basing our lives on a lie. We have no hope, ultimately, because Jesus was clearly just dying for his own sin, not for yours or for mine. And he wasn't that promised risen king that we saw back in the message to David, how David's son would reign upon the throne forever and gather people into the kingdom of God. Couldn't be that because he's, he's stuck dead. No, if you're inquiring into the message of Christianity, hear this, that is, we believe that we can have a relationship with Jesus. That is a relationship with someone who's alive. We, we believe that God raised him from the dead, that that is an event of history. And it's interesting how 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. It, it, it actually says that there are two witnesses, two types of witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Let me read this to you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance... That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was promised beforehand in the Old Testament, and that he was buried. So there's evidence in what happened around about. Promised, evidence. That he was buried, and then here's the point, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So God promised that the Messiah would be raised from the dead, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. So the Apostle Paul is saying that there are two types of witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. The first is God said it would happen. He'd made the promise that he would have a king who, having died for sin, would be raised to life and rule over a kingdom forever and ever and ever. Those promises go way back hundreds of years before Jesus. 
In fact, some people have looked at the promises in Isaiah 52 and 53 of the one who would suffer and die and then be raised from the dead and thought that must have been written in the first century because it seems so clearly to be about Jesus. Except when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found that there was evidence that predated Jesus of Isaiah making those promises. That's the first witness. God said it would happen and he'd been saying it again and again. But the second witness is people saw the resurrected Jesus. People witnessed the empty tomb. And if you want to look at the reliability of the witnesses, well, there's Cephas, that's another word for Peter. He knew Jesus pretty well, so he's unlikely to have been mistaken. And he'd probably be quite embarrassed because when Jesus was being executed, well, just before he was executed, three times he denied even knowing Jesus. Uh, not only does Peter appear as a witness here, but when you look at this, there is James. I take it that's a reference to Jesus' own brother. Surely he'd know Jesus if he was raised from the dead. 500 people at the same time. Sometimes people like to say, oh, it must have been a hallucination. You know, sometimes you think you see somebody, but it's actually somebody else. You do not get mass hallucinations. Um, it's, it's not a psychological phenomenon. You don't get everybody tuned in at the same time. And he says that many of these are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It's a little bit like saying, if you want to check this out, these people, you can go and talk to them. You can hear what they have to say. You can find out what that day was like. And then he goes on to write about how he appeared to him also on the road to Damascus. The resurrection of Jesus. There are good witnesses there. Both the preparation in the Old Testament and the visual eyewitness testimony of people. See, the resurrection isn't simply a party trick. It's a testimony that when God says he will do something, he does it. So that's one, Jesus' life and ministry. Two, Jesus' death. Three, Jesus' resurrection. Now four, Jesus' exaltation. Uh, a big word meaning Jesus in glory. Because we read in the book of Acts that Jesus is taken up into heaven. Now Jesus returns to God the Father where he is seated at the right hand of God. And it, it, it's a way of saying... He is the one who is ruling over all. He's the king in God's kingdom. That's what that imagery means. And how do we know that Jesus is the king in God's kingdom? Well, pick it up with me at verse 33. Verse 33, it says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So Jesus has ascended to God the Father and God the Father has given authority to Jesus to pour out his spirit upon all people. That's what God said he would do. So the spirit proceeds from both the Father and Jesus. And here is the fulfilment of God's promises that in the last days he would pour out his spirit. Joel 2. It's happening. And it's only going to happen when the Messiah is ruling on his throne. 
So now that the Spirit is being poured out, it's evidence that Jesus is exalted. They testify to each other. We see again some Old Testament passages here. Uh, quotation from Psalm 110, For David didn't ascend to heaven. And yet he said in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's clearly referring to Jesus. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. In other words, Lord, he is king, he is God over all. Messiah, he's that promised, anointed king ruling as God said he would. So there's the fourth thing. We've got the witnesses of the Old Testament, the witnesses who see the Spirit being poured out. So you've got Jesus' life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. And then finally we see the response. Jesus is offering salvation. And so pick it up at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Two things they are to do. First of all, repent. Um, in Aussie vernacular, it means chucka yui. Uh, they're going in the direction away from God, chuck a yui, turn back to God. Acknowledge that you've rejected God, turn around and head back to God. That's the response. You see, it's quite graphic at the time because here you've got all these Jewish people that are gathered around and Peter said to them, you know, you guys made a massive mistake. But you, you killed God's anointed king. But that was God's plan, that was God's purpose. And they're cut to the heart. Did we really do that? What, what should we do? Chuck a yui, turn back to God and be baptised. The word baptism doesn't appear here either, actually. It's, uh, it's just a word that means to wash. Um, and we just get so familiar with the word baptism that we immediately think about it in terms of whatever church culture we've experienced baptism but what he's saying quite literally is repent and be washed be cleansed by Jesus because that's what Jesus death was all about it was about washing away your sin repent and be baptized by the way they they may well have all 3,000 of them actually got baptized in water they were told that they should turn back to God and be cleansed, every one of them, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And if they would turn back to God and be cleansed from their sin, then God would replace their sin with himself. He would remove their sin from them and he would come in and dwell within us by his Holy Spirit. What an extraordinary turnaround under the judgment of God, running away from God, 
hearing the message about Jesus, chucking a yui, coming back, turning to God, seeking his cleansing, being washed clean and God placing his spirit within us. That's how extraordinary is this day. And this day has become a paradigm for every day when any person turns back to God again. This is what God's offering. This is what the last days are all about. Just a little aside here, by the way. If it's the last days, 50 days after Jesus, I take it we're still in the last days now. I I, I get a little frustrated when people run around saying, hey, there's a war in Ukraine, therefore it's the last days. Hey, there's a massive earthquake um, in another part of the world and, and thousands of people have died and there's tsunamis coming in from broken dams and thousands, tens of thousands have died. Therefore, it's the last days. Yes, it is. But it has been since God poured out his spirit at the day of Pentecost. And if it was important to turn back to God then, I hesitate to say that it's probably more important now because Jesus is likely to return soon. And if we're around, when he comes back, it will have been a good thing to have turned back to him. And if he doesn't return in our lifetime, then we're still going to meet him. Because the Bible says that everybody will die and after that they will face God in judgment. And you've got a choice. You can, you can not repent, you can not chuck a yui and you can stay the way that you are and, and take your chances with God on that day. Or you can take heed of God's promises and their fulfilment in Jesus and say, thank you, God, and turn back to him and be saved. Well, there were 3,000 that responded on that day. 3,000 people who turned back to Jesus. The, the church grew rapidly. They weren't dependent upon babies to grow back then. Um, There were 3,000 added on this occasion to the 120 that had responded earlier. That is, there's massive church growth going on. And I just want to finish by giving you a glimpse of the new community. Um, The the last few verses of Acts chapter 2 give us a wonderful picture of the first Christians. Uh, Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many uh, wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I I want to pick up on three things that go on once you have turned back to God and you've met the resurrected Jesus. Three implications. The first is it changes our words. Then secondly, it changes our actions. And thirdly, it changes our attitudes and not necessarily in that order. It's all of the above, I take it. You see here that Peter, having come to grips with the resurrected Jesus, has to speak about what Jesus has done. And this is the beginning of the book of Acts. 
as you read right through the book of Acts, they can't help speaking about what Jesus has done, who he is and what he's done. He died, but he's alive. So turn back to him. They keep saying it. If it's true, then it matters. And it matters every bit as much on the mid-north coast as it mattered in the Middle East back then. It matters. So people speak. And we speak this wonderful news of hope for those who are perishing. We also see that they learned from the apostles. Notice in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and a fellowship. That is, the apostles, and we get a glimpse of it here from Peter, take the Bible and they explain it. Um, here there's a, a reference to Joel, there's a reference to uh, Psalm 16, another reference to Psalm 110. If you keep working through Acts, you'll find all kinds of Old Testament passages and the apostles say, you know what you read back then? This is what's going on now. You see, the apostles, they'd worked their way right to the end of the, well, almost, they, they got to the ninth stop in their Bible and ten. And they wanted people to understand that all that God has been doing way back since the very beginning has been pointed to this moment now. The life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There's one more chapter, by the way, next week. Don't miss it. But their words are completely changed. We are people of the word because we're people who know that God's word changes hearts. And so we want to tell people this great message. We hear it, we believe it. Therefore, we are called to share it. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who are being saved. My, my prayer, and I want you to make it your prayer, is that God will add to our numbers people who are being saved. Because we're on a, on a rescue mission. We're, we're in, in um, inflatable rescue boats going out to bring people in from the dangers of rips in the surf. Spiritually, that's what we're on about. And it's a message that'll do that. Secondly, actions. See extraordinary things going on here with actions. They fellowship. That means they share together. They had meals. They met and prayed. There's a real community developing. Uh, they meet daily in the temple courts. That's 3,000 people. So they're a mega church, all right? They've just begun and they're a mega church, but they also meet in people's homes. So they had salt groups as well. Um, there's a big group of them and they meet to encourage, they meet to pray, they meet to spur each other on and meeting together is so important for them. They demonstrate this by their lives and it makes an impact on those around about them. Notice that they enjoyed the favour of the people. Now they had no control over that but it was nice for them to enjoy the favour of the people. If nothing else they made an impact. It might be at other times in church history that the people gathered together, encouraged each other, spurred one another on and were meeting together and the people in the community hated them for it. We, we can't control the response that we'll get. But so often people see the difference that Christ makes in our lives and they're attracted to the message of Christianity. Thirdly, and this is the heart of it, there is a change in attitude. There's a lot of attitude language here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. It's not, yeah, well, if I've got some time, I might read a bit of the New Testament and I might catch up with another believer. 
Now, they actually devote themselves to it. And why wouldn't they? They've seen what's been going on. Jesus, he'd been crucified. Public record. Everybody knew it. And, and they were pretty depressed after that. And they're walking down this road and this guy starts talking to them. And, and they said, are you the only person around here who doesn't know what's been going on in these days? But what they don't realise is that it's Jesus with them. And he's the only person who really does know what's been going on because he's not dead. He's alive. And once they grasp that, they start sharing that message. They devote themselves to it. See, I think our problem sometimes is we're just too far from the actual event. It's just that long ago in a different place, in a different culture, at a different time. And and so if that had happened down on Rainbow Beach and, and somebody was publicly executed, and then on the third day you go up to Loretton Cemetery and this extraordinary event has taken place because he's no longer dead, he's actually alive again. And people start to talk about this. This is world-shattering news. And, and you even get, well, you, you definitely get Sky News reporting this, but even the left-wing media report this as well. This is absolutely earth-shattering. That's what we've got, friends. We're, we're not playing around. This is real. So their attitude changed. They, they're in awe at what God's doing amongst them through the apostles, the signs and the wonders. They're absolutely gobsmacked by this. And, and they're willing to go without. They're really generous. Notice that they sell their belongings and they give it to the poor. And why wouldn't they? Because life is about resurrection. And you can't take it with you when you die, so let it be used well now. There's great encouragement here not to hang on to the things that we've got but to care for those around about us, to care for those who are in need, to take um, the, the reality of people's circumstances to heart. We see also that they're praising God, the sincerity here, they're, they're glad, they're connecting with their community, they are a changed people. Let, let's think about Salt Community Church. I was, I was pondering this and I thought, they probably wouldn't have called themselves Salt Community Church. They probably, if they had to name themselves, would have called themselves something like the Church of the Risen King Jesus. I think that would be a fair call. Well, I've got a friend who planted a church in Sydney in Fairfield and he decided to call his church the Church of the Risen King Jesus. And I remember thinking, that's not a very hipster name. He really ought to go with something like grace or salt or anchor. But it doesn't matter what we name ourselves. It matters who we are. And we need to be the church of the risen King Jesus. Yeah, we might be known in the community by the word salt. And there's a lot you can do with that name. And it's easy to remember. So let's keep it. 